Today's episode of the Mission Daily is brought to you by Jamf Now, the number one device management solution for all your company's Apple devices. To learn more about how Jamf Now can help you secure your Macs, iPads, or iPhones, head to jamf.com slash mission daily to set up your first three devices for free. That's jamf.com slash mission daily or click on the link in the show notes. On this episode of the Mission Daily, Chad sat down with New York Times bestselling author and journalist A.J. Jacobs. A.J. is best known for writing about his lifestyle experiments, and in this conversation, he shares with us his writing process, the power of acting as if, and his creative approach to marketing his books and his writing. We hope you enjoyed the episode. All right, welcome back to the Mission Daily. I'm here with A.J. Jacobs. A.J., thanks for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me. So, AJ, what's going on in, are you in New York right now? I am. I'm in New York. I'm in my little uh, shared office space that I rent. Do you use that primarily for writing, meetings, podcasting, what type of stuff? All of the above, because I have three young kids and they're not so into the boundaries. So uh, I feel <laughs> I have to escape. Being a writer and trying to write from home is already hard enough. But when you mix in, you know, a wife or a spouse and kids, I can see how it gets impossible. So, oh yeah, it's yeah. a nightmare. I mean, I wrote a book on health, and I wrote that one while walking on the treadmill, and that I do <laughs> love to do. And this this <laughs> office is way too small to have a treadmill, so that's the only downside to working here. We got to get a space with a treadmill. We're on it. We're going to make this interview go viral, and then we can succeed mm-hmm. in doing that. Awesome. Well, let's let's jump into the questions for listeners out there. This is going to be a bit different. This is our experimental interview format. So bear with us as we jump into it. I'm all for experiments, as you know. Yes, yes. AJ, what is the, so personally for you, it could be when you were a kid, a teenager, or in your adult life, what's personally been the most challenging, depressing, or roughest period that you went through? Ah, look at that. You go right in for it. You don't know more about <laughs> well, let's see. I mean, I was not a popular kid. I don't think I I did not like my childhood. Whenever I read about oh the wonders, I'm, I'm right there with you, brother really? in arms. It was it was a nightmare. I didn't hit puberty till I think 1920 something like yeah, ar- arguably that late. So, brother in arms, go ahead. Yeah, there you go. I mean, it was some people love their child. It was a time of innocence. For me, it was just a time before people had developed a conscience and they were <laughs> horrible. And I, I was horrible too. I'm sure I yeah. was horrible too. But, you know, things like I did get, I'm old. So I had something called the Atari 2400, which was like a, a step up from the original Atari, which had adventure and all those games. But like, I remember being on the school bus and hearing some guy say, uh, I really want to play Atari, but that means I have to go to A.J. Jacobs' house. Uh, Oh, it was heartbreaking. And I have not forgotten that. And then I became friends with him later, but still, (laughs) it wasn't enough. Who knows? Maybe he was just friends for the Atari. This type of comments that people make in passing sometimes, I mean, they cut to the bone and they stick with you for such a long time. That's... uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good reminder for anybody listening, like what you say is going to be listened to and internalized right. by everyone. So, Although geez. I do think like, you know, it is, it is important to consciously 
forget the obviously I haven't forgotten, but part of my career and my my new book especially is trying to get out of the negative bias, which is that I get mostly compliments in my life, which uh, I'm very lucky, but uh, of course I also get insults. How do you train your mind to focus on the good stuff as opposed to the bad stuff? Because our brains, unfortunately, as you know, I think you've talked about this, we've got that evil negative bias and uh, it's just the worst. So anyway, uh, I should do an exercise where I write down all the good things that happened in my childhood because you know what? Maybe it wasn't as bad as I'm remembering. I just have a negative bias towards it. That's an excellent answer. So next question here is professionally, you know, you mentioned you have a new book out and professionally for you, what has been the most challenging experience or what what was your professional dark night of the soul? Well, I would say I started out the first five or four so years of my career. I was, it was tough. I was working at a tiny newspaper in California and those things don't even exist anymore, small newspapers. <laughs> and I was covering, you know, sewage for the town, like, you know, just the, oh um, man. Yeah. It was not like my dream job. This was in Antioch, California, which is outside of San okay. Francisco. I remember this was a dark day. The guy, the police, not the fire chief in the town, was arrested for having a meth lab in his basement. <laughs> and I had to cover it, and I had to call him to get a comment, because, you know, that's my job. And he, like, I was like, so what's it like to get arrested for a meth lab? You have a and he said, if you ever call me again, I will come to the newspaper and kill you. And then... <laughs> Then, Did you print that? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I should have. But then the next day, something else happened in the case. And as a reporter, I have to get both sides. So I remember calling him the next day and being like, I know we talked yesterday and we got off on the wrong foot. I don't know what I said. <laughs> and he just hung up. And I spent the rest of the day, you know, sweating, literally sweating, looking at the door, waiting for him to come in and kill me. So this is before your book, A Year of Living Biblically. So where'd you learn to turn the other cheek like that? Because not many people that are getting a death threat one day are picking up the phone the next day and saying, hey, like, (laughs) I I think there was a misunderstanding. (laughs) Well, it was my job. Believe me, I didn't want to do it. But well, it's not uh, like you took it like you took it really seriously. Um, oh, yeah. that's hard to pick up the phone and call somebody. Where did that type of drive to to pick up the phone and call somebody like that again? Where'd that where'd that come from? A lot of times I feel that I'm acting as if I'm brave. And that that's sort of a big theme of all of my projects. That there's a great quote I love. It's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way into a new way of acting. Meaning that's like so you you act as if you pretend you're brave and then you eventually do the stuff and you become a little braver. And Teddy Roosevelt talked about this when he had to, he was like a wimpy New York kid and he went out to, I believe it was Montana to be a cowboy just to learn to be braver. And that's what he said. I just had to pretend that I was as brave as these cowboys and eventually you become. So that's what, you know, I would, force myself. I could feel myself forcing my fingers onto the dial pad and forcing myself to say, hello, this is AJ Jacobs, because that's the only way to do it sometimes. 
That's fascinating. That is excellent advice for anybody that's listening who wants to get into a new habit, new mindset. AJ, what would you say, you know, you have three kids, you're still married, correct? I am. I am. Knock on wood. How long have you how long have you been married for? I've been married now 18 years, but you know, I get a lot of emails because my books, what I do is I go through these experiments and you know, do some change my lifestyle. And that is not always easy on my wife. So I get a lot of emails saying, you know, your wife is so patient. So I show her those to make sure that she knows she's appreciated so that she'll stay married to me. So for living a non-conventional, you know, lifestyle and career, running all the experiments that you do, you know, being obsessed with self-help in, in the best way possible, you know, I mean, that as a compliment, how are there any strategies you found to work with your wife? You mentioned one. Are there any others that people might use to interact with their spouse and kind of get through those challenging times a bit easier? Oh, that's a great question. I would say, first of all, I, I do try, I do think she agrees that in the end, I come out better. So the process can be painful and I take it too far, but hopefully there is a little bit of improvement in the end. And one thing I would encourage any spouses, wives, husbands, you know, not to take it lying down. There was one example when I was doing the year of living biblically. If you take the Old Testament really seriously, then they have all of these laws about purity. You cannot touch a woman when she's menstruating. <laughs> and it's even more serious. If a menstruating woman sits on a seat, a chair, then that chair becomes impure. And my wife found that offensive. So she sat in every seat in our apartment. And I, <laughs> so I was like, oh my God. So I had to stand for much of the year, which I later found out in the health book, standing is better than sitting. So there you go. it was doing me a favor. So I guess having a sense of humor and letting your partner get back at you and, uh, and do their own thing. Really smart. Okay, so we've moved through, we answered some of the, you know, or I ask some of the more hellish type questions. Now we need to move into the maybe purgatory time of sure. uh, where you're past, you know, the sewage writing and covering, you know, getting threats from the local meth lab owner and now, or alleged, <laughs> the alleged meth lab owner. Let's be clear. I don't want to come after us. He's probably still at large. Um, <laughs> so you're past that now. And t take me to the moment where you get the first offer to publish your first book. What was that? What was that moment like? What were the, you know, 24 hours before the offer came in, after you signed the offer? What was that time like? That's a great question. I've never been asked that. It was, well, what happened was I was working at that tiny newspaper, but I had delusional optimism, and which I do think is a very important tool. There's so much, you know, the chances of failure is so high that you have to just keep bang, you know, banging your head against the wall and not be dissuaded by rejection. The chances of, of failing are still going to be high, but at least with delusional optimism, there's a chance that you will get through. Without Absolutely. delusional optimism, it just goes down to zero. So anyway, I was delusionally optimistic. I was writing for the tiny newspaper, but also just pitching the biggest papers in the world you know, hey, can I write this? Can I write that? I would send in a hundred ideas, maybe one out of a hundred would get accepted. <laughs> I wrote a humor piece for a local San Francisco magazine about 
the eerie similarities between Jesus and Elvis. And it was just a single joke repeated like 20 times, like, you know, Jesus walked on water, Elvis surfed in blue Hawaii. You know, it was that. And I had the delusional optimism to think, hey, this could be a book. And so I sent it off blindly to a bunch of agents. I didn't have any contact. And one of them happened to be an Elvis fan. I mean, a lot, oh, a, lot is a lot of it. And he's like, you know what? This could be a book. And we hired an illustrator. And I will tell you just quickly, just to stress how hard it can be sometimes. One of the publishers said that they were interested in, in the book and they might make a bid, but they said they wanted to see a photo of me, the author. Uh, and I was like, I said to my agents, like, what, why do they need that? And he's like, oh, they just want to make sure you don't have two heads so that you can go on a talk show or whatever. And uh, I was like, all right. So I went to Walmart and took a photo. I sent it in and the agent calls and is like, so they're going to pass. And I'm like, what? I'm not good looking enough to be an author. I thought the whole point of being an author is you could sit in your room <laughs> and not yeah. have to be good looking. So anyway, that was like, you know, not good. You're taking me back to when I got the first round of my senior portraits back. And it was, um, yeah, similar, similar experience from friends and family. <laughs> not a lot of pats on the back. Not a lot of pats on the back. You're um, a good looking guy. I can't I find that. I, I looked lucked out after I guess like early 20s and things like that I definitely could have made an appearance on Maury or somebody as like uh, turnarounds but uh, yeah. um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, well so, anyway I uh, so finally one of the one of the publishers Bantam books made a proposal and it was not a lot of money I mean it was a lot for me at the time you know not enough to live on it was like I think twenty thousand dollars so, you know, enough, I guess, to live on. A decent uh, supplement. Were you going to quit your day job at the newspaper? or What was the plan when you got that offer? No, I wanted to keep working because I felt I needed the, to keep the day job. But yeah, the elation, it really was an amazing high, which I think back now, and it was like, you know, it was great, but that was only one step. It's not like right. I had a... It was like one rung of a, of a ladder, and I'm very glad I did it, but it was, you know, I realize now it's more of a process. It's not like you ever make it. Like, there's yeah. not a moment when you say, now I'm a success. It's just, you know, you keep slogging away, and you try to have fun with what you're doing, try to have a positive impact. It's almost like, and this is a weird term that you might want to cut out, but like, yeah. I think this obsession with losing your virginity is very weird. Why should there be this black and white thing? There's a lot, a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff you can do. Why the obsession Absolutely. with the it's, one it's thing? A, it's such an oversimplification of yeah, a process that a process that loses its importance when you just drill down to before, after, then it loses its fun. So, you know, you're you're working, you're still working at the paper. The book comes out. You get the advance. During this time, are you talking with anyone else or strategizing with anyone else about, should I send this out to this place? Should I send it out to that place? Are you working closely with your agent? Were you married at the time? And yeah, what was that process like? Because I know there's a temptation when creatives have ideas to get approval or get vindication from friends or family. How'd you go about all that? I would say one of the key things about my career, and even on that book, was 
that I knew I couldn't just publish the book and sit back and wait for the plaudits and sales. Like you have to hustle. Like being a writer is less than half actually writing the words. You know, you got to get out there and try to get press. So I'm calling everyone I knew who is vaguely associated with the media, sending out hundreds of books like myself, like, you know, signing them and writing handwritten notes. I was terrible at media when I first started. I'm a little better now, but I remember my first radio show for that book, the Jesus Elvis book. I was so nervous. It was over the phone and I was so nervous. I began stuttering and I couldn't get out of it. I was stuck in this loop and they had to cut me off like in the middle of the interview. I was just like, <laughs> I, 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 and they're like, okay, thank you. That's it. <laughs> I was like, oh, that didn't go well. But I didn't, I didn't give up. I will say. Was that empowering after that happened or maybe like a week or a month after? Did you feel like, well, that was the, the worst that it could have gone. And was there any type of thought process like that? Or what was the recovery process after the interview like? Yeah, I love that. I don't know if I was smart enough to have that reframe. What I did was I I was like, you know what, I'm going to just practice so that eventually I never, that never happens to me. So I would agree to speak at any, you know, tiny opportunity, any tiny radio show. And again, it was all about pretending. I sort of forced myself to pretend that I liked this. And I pretended long enough that now I actually do. I actually prefer what I'm doing now, talking to you or or giving talks in person. I prefer that to sitting in a room alone and writing. It is weird, the power of acting as if. So what you mentioned, I think, was really interesting because a lot of people think that the job of being a writer or a successful writer is glamorous. But in reality, you have to do a lot of research on your own. There's a lot of writing on your own. And humans are naturally social animals. So how have you gotten through some of the loneliness and some of the isolation that's required to produce any writing of note? That's a great question. And I do think that's, that's a tough thing about being a writer. As you say, people are, uh, are social. So one thing is I do love the, the two favorite parts are marketing it, talking to people like you, and also researching it. Because what I do is I like go out and I interview the most interesting people in the world. And I love they are willing to talk to me. And then the actual writing, part of it is I I do rent one of these offices, not only to get away from my kids, but because there are faces around. And I don't even talk really to anyone, but just the mere fact of faces is helpful. And the other strategy, and again, uh, I'm not advocating it for everyone, But I am a big fan of talking to myself. I have actually... If if I'm in the car or something like that, definitely. I try to like analyze the day and then rehab conversations. I don't know if that's the right word. Yeah, just practice things, revisit things I said that were kind of stupid, try to say I'm better. Um, Interesting. I I don't redo conversations, but that's an interesting idea. What I do more is I just narrate my thoughts and... It helps in many ways. First of all, because I think my default, that that negative bias, like my brain is going to, if I leave it alone, it's going to go into some dark alleys and start talking. You know, I can't believe what that guy said. I can't believe he rejected my idea. What an asshole. But then you hear yourself saying it out loud and you're like, oh, you know what? 
this is not helping. This is, you're obsessing, you know, over one thing, you're ruminating. Let's get out of that and then start talking about something more interesting, like what's a new idea I could have? What's something new I could do? So I find that helpful. And there's also some interesting science about talking to yourself that it's really good if you're angry that I guess the language centers, a lot of them are in the front, frontal cortex, the, which is sort of the intellectual part of the brain, not the lizard brain, not the, the really emotional brain. So it sort of helps you as, as soon as you start talking and even just saying, I'm so angry about this, that helps calm you down. So uh, I am a fan of talking out loud. Yeah, I love that because I think in our modern day and age, there's a lot of people that associate having anger with weakness. But I think in reality, when we don't confront the anger or talk about it or, or narrate it like you're doing, that's when it can be really problematic because you kind of forget about it and then you go around in this perpetual state of angst or frustration. Yeah, one, one of the most yeah, valuable strategies you've outlined. So now to kind of segue into the, uh, the more heavenly stories <laughs> and you know, parts of your journey, you have a new book out, Thanks a Thousand. What was that process creating it like? And could you tell us something about it? Sure. Well, I got the idea and I, I do find some of the, I, I'll just, in terms of idea generating, there are two ways I do it. First, I really do try to carve out 15 minutes a day and just come up with ideas because I find that very helpful. Like make, you know, make an appointment with your creativity because otherwise, you know, the, all the gadgets, they can suck you in and you'll never have time. Sometimes I come up with book ideas or article ideas. Sometimes I'll just take a riff on an idea, like just something, you know, a snowman. And I'll think, what can I do with a snowman? What if it was a snow woman? What if it was a snow transgender person? What right. if it was like, instead of the pipe, he had like a jewel, he was vaping. You know, just, try, just you know, 99% of those ideas are going to go nowhere. But it really yeah. is a, a quantity is so important in idea generation because the 1% are going to work. So that's one. And then the other part of idea generation to me is always being on the lookout, like always having that second head almost on your shoulder saying, huh, there's something there. So that's what happened with this book because I had been for years reading all of how important gratitude is. Like it is just so crucial to our happiness, to our, to our health, uh, healthy habits. So I wanted to start this gratitude ritual and I decided to say a, some, sort of a prayer of Thanksgiving before meals, but I'm not religious. So instead of thanking God, I would say out loud, I'd say, you know, I want to thank the farmers who grew these tomatoes and the, uh, the woman at the grocery who sold them to me and my son. Who How dare you be it. rational, first of all. Like that's, <laughs> just kidding. Well, I don't that's know awesome. if it was yeah. right. I mean, well, here's the critique was from my son who said, you know, dad, that's kind of lame because those people <laughs> can't hear you. And so if you really cared, you would go and thank them in person. You would tell them thanks. Very wise. And that was like, I was like, oh, that's a good idea. That's, that could be a book. That would be an interesting book. And I focused on coffee, much to my kids' chagrin. They wanted like 
candy or something. And I went around to a thousand people all over the world and tried to thank them in person or over the phone or by email and say, you know, thank you to the, the guy who grew the beans and the person who designed the logo for the coffee shop and the truck driver. I remember I called the woman who does pest control for the warehouse where the coffee beans are stored. And I said, you know, I, I know this sounds weird, but I just want to thank you for keeping the insects out of my coffee. And she said, well, that, that does sound weird, but, but thank you. You know, I don't get a lot of appreciation. So you made my day. And that in turn made my day. So when it works, it actually, it's a little awkward, but it actually is good for both the thanker and the thankee. So not to keep going back to the do the meth lab, but were there any similar reactions to when you're at, you're basically thanking people? Were, were people like very standoffish or yeah, on balance, like how were they and what was the craziest response? Yeah, I would say a third of the people were highly, maybe less, maybe a quarter, were highly skeptical. And they were like, is this a pyramid scheme? What do you have to tell me? <laughs> so yes, there certainly was some skepticism. And, and when I was making the calls or doing it, again, I had to sort of do this method acting where I would get into a mindset and say, like, I'm going to do it and almost watch myself do it. It was almost like the bizarro version of crank phone calls. It was like <laughs> I was making crank phone calls, but... I was making up for the ones I did in high school, which were obnoxious. Like I was trying to make positive crank phone calls. So yeah, I would say I, I definitely got about a quarter of that. But there's actually a recent study that said we underestimate how meaningful thanks are and we overestimate how awkward it's going to be. So I sort of, I, I found that anecdotally to be true. It was awkward, but usually the good outweighed the awkwardness. Were there one or two responses from people that kind of like made it all worthwhile for you? Or like, were, were there any responses basically that were just like incredible from the thanks? Oh yeah. I mean, I think there were a lot of moments that, uh, I mean, one moment that I loved was when I was interviewing the guy who designed the lid for my coffee cup. And I had never really given much thought to this little lid, but he was so passionate. He could have talked for like three days straight about the wow. design of his lid and how he had designed the opening for the, the aroma in just a, such a way to, because he thinks that a bad lid can ruin your coffee because you don't get the aroma, which is so much part. And the, the design for the opening of the mouth hole so the liquid comes out in a certain way so that your mouth, I mean, he just went on. And I was sort of chuckling and having a delightful time because it was, on the one hand, so ridiculous how much thought went into this, but also wonderful that people do put this much thought into these things we take for granted. And I think yeah. it's everywhere. Like it's, there's, caring, there's caring intent all around us. Yeah. So Thanks a Thousand is out right now. Are you on tour right now? Are you promoting the book? What's your kind of like daily schedule like now? Yeah, I have been doing, you know, interviews and I've been writing. And in terms of marketing, I find you have to really be creative. For instance, when I wrote the Bible book, I was like, how can I market this to women's magazines? And I was like, well, you know, the Bible talks about 
it talks about sex. You know, there's some racy parts. All over the place. Yeah. (laughs) Especially the Old Testament. That's got some so I was like, what if I did sex advice from the Bible? And I sold that as an article. And, uh, and so for this one, I've, I've written, you know, I did a piece for LinkedIn on gratitude and business, how important it is for, for retaining customers. And I did one for a Jewish, I'm Jewish, so I did one for a Jewish magazine about, like, you know, gratitude is Jewish. Because I always think the main Jewish emotions are like, you know, anxiety and, and guilt. But no... I made an argument that, uh, that gratitude is Jewish. So, uh, so that's what I'm doing. I also did another marketing thing that, that is at once, uh, you know, this covers both sides of your podcast, the hellish and the heavenly, because I, I decided I was going to write 1,000 handwritten thank you notes to readers. Wow. And I announced it, and they can go on my website and fill out a form. And it's been, as I say, you know, a huge pain in the hand, I guess. But it's also been wonderful because these people have written what my books have meant to them and their favorite parts. And it's helped me. It's like I get to see what resonates with people. So I think that helps sure. me as a writer. So I've just been loving it. And, and the other thing is I'm sending out these cards and people are tweeting them. So, you know, it's even a little extra promotion that way. So two more questions for you before you leave. AJ, you've been really generous with your time. Thank you. The first question here is, you mentioned idea generation. You know, you have to keep exercising that muscle. You talk about that a lot. James Altucher is another popularizer of this. But when I first came across it, it was Earl Nightingale talking about it. Was there any inspiration for you or were you just doing this naturally? That's a good question. I guess I don't remember reading it. I just remember that I loved, I've always loved generating ideas. Even as a kid, like I almost had this neurotic obsession where I would come up with new racket games. So like the weirdest racket sport, like, you know, hit it off the moon or whatever. But then I'm glad you brought up James Altucher because he's a friend of mine and we often talk about it. And he has uh, spurred me along in this line of thinking. I mean, he's, he's told me an anecdote where when he was at the sort of at the bottom of his career, he had gone bankrupt for the first or second time. And he wrote, I think it was 40 people. He wrote 40 people. Some he knew, some he didn't. And he offered them 10 free ideas. And he wrote them up in emails. And 38 ignored him, but two responded. And those two, you know, ended up resurrecting his career. And I loved that. And I actually, I talked with him about it on the air once. And I just got like two days ago, a guy who wrote me 10 ideas, which I did respond. I'm not going to do any of them, but I was, you know, I loved it. I loved it. So guy, if you're listening out there, they have to be better. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) They were great. It's not for me. So final, final question here. And we saved the most important question for last. What was the funniest prank phone call you did in high school? Oh, that is a good one. Well, my strategy, and I don't know if it was funny or not, would be, you know, we had the one, I don't even know if they still exist, but the 1-900 sex numbers, (laughs) like you would call and you'd get a woman on the other line who was either recording or a live person just, you know, describing a sex act in the most graphic way possible. So I would have, you know, I had the three-way line, so I would call the sex line 
and then I would call the headmaster of my school <laughs> and he would pick up and then I would connect them and I would like, he would be, what, what's going on? What, what is this? And then I would just let it go and see how long, I sort of did an experiment to see which authority figures would last, you know, would listen the longest be like, I am so offended. I'm hanging up right now. Right now I'm hanging up and they'd, you know, keep listening. And that was funny. So did you build uh, a local, like a small black book of blackmail or what did you do with that, uh, that highly valuable Intel? <laughs> I wish I had been that smart. It was just something I, uh, I did for fun, not for profit. That's hilarious. But that I will say, I mean, I often think my parents must have seen like I got all of these dozens of dollars of sex calls. But they never asked me about it, which is very nice of them. Wow. That is a funny note to end the interview on. AJ, thanks so much. <laughs> this is awesome. For everybody listening, Thanks a Thousand is out there. AJ, what's the best place for readers who want to connect with you on the socials? There's my Twitter feed is AJ, at AJ Jacobs. Facebook is facebook.com slash AJ Jacobs. And my email, if anyone wants to connect directly, is AJ at AJJacobs.com. Awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Hey, this is Ian from The Mission. I talk to Fortune 500 CIOs and IT visionaries about how much effort and energy they put into securing their devices. But they have teams of hundreds of IT professionals, an advantage that the average business doesn't have. Until now. Jamf now makes it easy to set up, manage, and protect your company's Apple devices. As your business grows, so does your digital inventory, making it harder to manage everyone's Apple devices. This is especially true if you have remote employees, like we do at The Mission. With Jamf now, you can check your digital inventory, distribute Wi-Fi and email settings, deploy apps, protect company data, or even lock and wipe a device as needed, from anywhere. And all of this with no IT experience needed. The Mission Daily listeners can start securing their businesses today by setting up their first three devices for free, forever. Add more starting at just $2 a month per device. Create your free account today at jamf.com slash mission daily. That's J-A-M-F dot com slash mission daily. We love Jamf and you will. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Two.